This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, I had a chance to sit down with my good friend, Dr. Brian O'Neill. Brian is the Dean of Faculty at the Moody Bible Institute, and he also teaches philosophy. We had a chance to talk about a lot of things, very interesting, very fascinating to me. So we decided to make this into two programs. So let's have a listen to part one of our interview with Dr. Brian O'Neill. Well, we are joined today in studio with Dr. Brian O'Neill. Brian and I have been friends now. You, you said yesterday for almost 10 years. Sounds like that's the math. That's kind of crazy. It seems like maybe five years. Well, they've been slow years. Oh, slow years. Okay. Brian teaches philosophy at the Moody Bible Institute, which is kind of an odd thing to teach at a Bible college. Well, it's too bad that people think so. Actually, I think it's pretty deeply connected with what well, we do. Well, of course you would, because sure, you're a philosophy sure. professor. I mean, you've got to defend your, your position. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty critical, I think, to uh, being uh, faithful theologians, faithful Bible scholars, faithful uh, apologists and teachers and witnesses in today's world. So, People in the local church, mm-hmm. when they hear philosophy and Christianity, where does their mind typically run? They probably think of them as being in opposition, but uh, it's probably because they've either had a really bad experience in a secular university context, or they've always thought that philosophy was really hard and the faith was really simple. Hmm. But if they have a little bit of a history of the church or the history of ideas, or if they've been well taught when it comes to philosophy, then I hope they have appreciation for the connection between philosophy and Christianity. When did you first become interested in philosophy? For me, I was late to the game, actually. I basically finished my undergraduate education, but I had been really affected by the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, not directly, um, more through his writings and uh, through his... What were some of Schaeffer's books that you enjoyed? I think the first thing was How Should We Then Live, which I saw initially as a video series and then found the the books that go along with it. But uh, Schaeffer traced the history of Western culture through the eyes of philosophy and uh, so forth along the way there. So... Uh, Schaefer kind of laid some groundwork for the relevance of philosophy to the faith and to theology and to understanding our own times. And then his more directly apologetic books, things like uh, The God Who Is There and He Is There and He's Not Silent and uh, things like that, pretty foundational for Christian philosophy in the last uh, several decades. And then as you sort of spiral into other things, um, his practical works, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, or even his little booklet, Art and the Bible, mm. teaching us how to engage culture and assess it in sort of nuanced and balanced ways. Uh, Schaefer kind of opened up my eyes, a lot of people's eyes actually, to the possibility of Christians doing uh, philosophy in a, in a helpful way. I, I see now why you wear later hosen. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get calves like his. <laughs> Well, I guess if you lived there, you would develop them. Recently, you talked to a group of young adults, and you began your session out of 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So if I read that quickly, Brian, I don't know that I would get philosophy or apologetics out of there. Help me out. Well, the apologetics part is kind of buried in the Greek word there, that make a defense. That's the same word, apologia. So uh, that's kind of the the core idea of apologetics is uh, this idea of giving a a reasonable, rational, consistent, faithful account of uh, the Christian faith. It's interesting in this place that uh, Peter says that we're supposed to be giving an account for the hope 
that sent us. I think that sometimes people think that the core of apologetics is making a specific defense of the resurrection of the or the accuracy of the Bible or something like that. All that's part of it. But even more fundamentally, there's just a character quality that Christians ought to embody and express, that people ought to notice and sense, and it ought to prompt discussion. But Peter says we need to be able to give an account of that, give a defense of that, an explanation of it when it comes up. And then as to the philosophy side, uh, on the one hand, there's just the the tools of philosophy, well-reasoned arguments and careful thinking and so on. But also, I think for Peter's audience, um, those folks with some Greek context around them the most famous apology or the most famous defense is Plato's apology, the mm-hmm. defense of Socrates that Socrates gives when he's on trial for his life in Athens. And uh, that would have been the most uh, sort of prominent reference point, even in the first century, for what it is to, to make a defense, to be able to stand and give an account when people charge you or challenge you. Take, take us back historically a little bit to Socrates and Aristotle's time frame. The, the Greek mind did not think of debate the way in the media today we're yelling and screaming and talking over each other. In, in the Jewish traditions, it was more of a case law. You, mm-hmm. you made citation of other rabbinic teaching, but the Greek mind was different. The Greek mind, you've got to be ready to go on a moment's notice. If, if you're challenged for your own ideas or ultimately for your life, uh, this was the case of the aristocracy in Greece. To be educated is to know something about music. It's to know something about math. But the most critical thing for the free male citizens of Greece was to be able to successfully participate in public discourse. This is how politics gets done. This is the root of democracy. But that's also a highly charged political context with a lot of infighting and backstabbing and all those things. And so you've literally got to be ready on any notice to uh, to make a personal defense if necessary of why you're doing things and how you can how you can justify it or explain it. So the practice of rhetoric, the practice of uh, public persuasion was a fundamental educational, practical, professional value for uh, young and older men in ancient Greece. And that's kind of the reference point there for a lot of what Peter's pointing to. Actually, the ancient Greek context, I think, is pretty close to our contemporary context. Uh, the, the period right before Socrates, the so-called pre-Socratic period, was a time of a, of a lot of um, dispute and even uncertainty about the nature of ultimate reality. I mean, some of those folks that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but you've got some people saying everything's made out of water and some people saying everything's made out of fire. You've got other people saying that uh, we trust our senses, and you've got other people saying that we know things through reason. And as a result of all that, everybody else walking around just saying, just a bunch of philosophers blowing hot air, no point even talking about these things. Actually, I think that that's one of the things that um, makes understanding our own postmodern context a lot easier for us, because we've cycled back to a situation like that, whether we're looking at contemporary physics or uh, where people are talking about red and green and blue quarks spinning left-handed and right-handed and back and forth, and people just say, I don't even know how to make sense of these things. Uh, there's, a, there's a new opportunity and challenge for, uh, for Christians even to, to think carefully and well and to be able to provide a, a helpful biblical voice in the middle of the, those kinds of postmodern uncertainties. Now, I want to come back to our passage we began with, yeah. but this is an important issue. We live in a culture that's 140 characters. Mm-hmm. We live in a culture that is uh, between Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. Um, the way they're messaging and communicating is not thoughtful. It is impulsive. It is knee-jerk. It is uh, anything but well thought through. Yeah. 
and you're a college professor, university professor, grad school professor. Uh, you teach, you speak around the country, you debate. How in the world do you help parents and uh, even some young adults who are coming up in that culture think a little bit more than how fast can I send that tweet out? Yeah. It's really a two-edged sword. On the one hand, part of being ready to make a defense is to make a defense in that culture. And so if there is a 140-character culture, then part of getting ready is to be able to speak, at least initially, to folks who you have to earn the right to be heard, maybe in that voice right away. So if you know that certain questions are going to come up, if you know that certain challenges are going to come up, I don't want bumper stickers and I don't want cliches, but responding initially in a way that uh, fits the paradigm and invites further discussion, I think is an appropriate start. Now, on the other side of things, we need to resist those kinds of cultural demands that say the only way to think or the only way to talk or the only way to react is in those sorts of categories. And so if we're parenting, if we're discipling, we need to disciple our children. We need to raise those around us. We need to even examine ourselves to, to not fall into that kind of trap that has to be in terms of soundbite. We need to uh, notice when we find ourselves uh, being susceptible to those kind of demands, uh, flashing through web pages or uh, only skimming the surfaces of headlines. We need to learn to think long and hard about the same thing for a little while. As, as a uh, Christian who happens to be an American, mm-hmm. and, and I love my country deeply, as you know, and I know you do as well, when I read Peter's words, ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope. That's very different than how I feel. I feel I'm on the defense, not for what I'm hoping in, but for what I believe in when I watch the culture going a very different direction at times, and I feel like I'm a crazy man going, wait, 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 wait. It can't, there's no, no such thing as what's true for you. Yeah. Or be true to yourself, all this stuff that's become almost our Gnosticism. You know, it's, mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, Brian, be true to yourself. Wh- whatever you want to do, just be true to who you are. And that's so much we're put on the defense, not in the way Peter's speaking, of our hope, but we're literally put on the defense And why in the world would you believe in the Bible? Why in the world would you believe in Jesus Christ? Why in the world would you believe Christ is the only way? Well, there's a... There's an ironic kind of a self-destructive pathway when your approach is you got to do what's right for you. You've got to be your own person. You've got to do it your own way. That path always leads into destruction and despair. And so uh, it's, it is the popular line, but any kind of reflection on that sort of situation, we realize that you're not, we're not adequate to, uh, to sustain our lives, to give value, to make things reasonable. Uh, our, our moral decisions, even loving our family or caring for those around us or even basic human kindness, uh, that kind of self-centered philosophy actually leads to despair. You realize that, that there's no point to my life. There's no point to living this way or, or, or acting this way. And so actually the sort of Christian living for God and loving one another, you know, the, the classic biblical commands, love God and love your neighbor, uh, playing those out through all of life actually is a countercultural way to mm. live, and it actually expresses hope uh, because it points to something beyond ourselves. I think that uh, everybody in the darkness of their own minds or when they're lying quietly in their own beds, they realize that uh, uh, this this thing I'm on, this way I'm acting, uh, doesn't satisfy. It's actually hopeless. And uh, those hopeless people, they ought to see in faithful Christians something mm. different and maybe 
maybe hope is the label that they need to put on it. So I, I think that uh, the, the initial phrase that uh, Peter gives there, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, that's the starting place for apologetics. Well, help, help us out there. Then, What does that practically mean to a college student who's nothing but a year out of being a teenager and now off at a yeah. campus? Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to, be, to sanctify Christ as Lord of my heart? I think, first of all, it starts with your foundation. So is Jesus Lord, in fact? And is the scripture true, in fact? And uh, if, you, if you start by affirming those things, then you build your life on top of that. You work forward from there. You, you resist the kind of the 140-character pop rejections of those things, whether it's from Richard Dawkins or contemporary atheists or others who just sort of dismissively say it's all dumb, and you recognize that there's a robust, strong, intelligent, historic Christian community that is alive today and has been alive for centuries that has been intellectually credible and given good answers and continues to wrestle with hard questions, and you uh, you begin to participate in that dialogue. It doesn't mean just sort of merely accept and believe on faith and don't ask any more hard questions, but it means uh, look to those who are forging ahead in those kinds of areas. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Ask yourself, do you believe it? Is the Bible true? What, and then bring on all the challenges. Uh, we, we don't need to be afraid of anything. Uh, if uh, people want to raise challenges to the faith, uh, we don't need to be go looking for trouble, but we don't mm-hmm. need to be afraid that some questions are going to be too hard to answer or that somebody's going to ask a question that's never been asked before. And I, I've known you long enough to know your nature is such that you, you can take a lot of flack. You can take the heat. You can take the hard questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get riled easily. I do. <laughs> yeah, I have a short, short fuse when something's wrong. I go, that's stupid, you know, and that's a part of me that, you know, in, in, in God's great kindness, I'm praying that he will soften as I get older. But a, a lot of us aren't yeah. thoughtful and reflective and able to take a breath and not take it personally. And again, you've got to have students that you've taught over the years that are the vinegar kids that are like, wait a minute, this isn't right. Or wait a minute, that's not that that's not the way I was taught. How do you help us? sort of tone it down maybe. Um, and, and again, what Peter's saying here as we look at the whole verse is is is, is counter-Christian cultural. That's right, that's right. <laughs> First we begin with, okay, do you, have you set apart Christ as Lord of your heart? Do you understand what it means that the word is true, his word is true, you know him? Now, I've got to be ready to make this apologia to anybody who asks me, but his movement is about the hope that I have and then operative gently and with reverence. Yeah, I'd point you to that phrase, Michael. I mean, for your, you know, if you yeah, sure, being admonish little, me. <laughs> <laughs> if you find yourself being a little rough or crass or otherwise, yeah, Peter says that these things to be done. No, there's no little. Done. There's no little. If about you find me. yourself being a great deal crass <laughs> there, and rough, um, then Peter reminds us that these things need to be done with gentleness and with reverence. And part of that is just remembering our own condition that uh, we were ourselves dark in our own sins and uh, rebels and enemies of God and. And we've been graciously brought to faith, and so uh, we can have sympathy for those uh, who are still in rebellion or in rejection. That uh, uh, you know, but for the grace of God, we would be in sure. a similar place. Uh, throughout Peter's epistle, he reminds us; he keeps pointing us to the example of Christ, who Himself bore our sufferings, mm-hmm. who was Himself innocent, who did not return 
anger for persecution. And uh, Peter reminds us that we're, we're going to be persecuted. So we have the, um, the witness of those around us. We have our own experiences. We've got the example of Jesus himself. We can anticipate rough times, persecution, uh, challenges. Peter just says, make sure that uh, if you are persecuted, it's for righteousness sake. I mean, don't be persecuted for unrighteousness. And uh, then there is a, a kind of personal discipline of um, gentleness, respect, humility. That it's not, it's not easy, and I don't even hold myself up as a model of it. I, um, actually, I, uh, when I'm involved in something that, it, that lets sort of anonymous folks weigh in, you know, comments online or something like that, I try not to read the comments because I'm a little thin-skinned. And I'm also kind of contentious by nature. So I might think I have to respond to all of those mm-hmm. and like pick all those fights. And we've got those um, sort of proverbs in tension about not answering fools according to their yeah. wisdom and answering fools according to their wisdom. And so uh, we need to be careful not to throw pearls before swine, but we need to learn how to seize the opportunities that are given and speak gently to turn away wrath. And and going back to Socrates and the culture uh, there, I mean, there are some things that are analogous today because we've got this vitriolic culture, whether Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or if you're a talk radio junkie, or if you're a blog person, or if you follow certain people, there is a vitriol and a snarkiness that we like. Yeah, It's sort of an entertainment value, and the person that's quicker and faster and sharper tongue and dismantles their opponent, even though we may disagree with their argument, we kind of smile at right. that ability to uh, brandish them with words. Or vice versa. I mean, if we're watching public dialogue and we treat it like a basketball game, right? We want our side to win. Mm -hmm. So even if they cheat to win, right? If you're trained in the rules of fallacies or good reasoning or something like that, you might hear a preacher or an apologist make some appeal that's uh, irrational, literally, right? It appeals to emotions or to fallacies or just isn't reasoned well or isn't faithful to the text, you know, we want to cheer for our side, and it seems like you're cheating or you're dishonest or you're a traitor if you if you refuse to cheer or if you sort of say, wait a minute, that's not what the text says, or you're using uh, sort of an attack on the person rather than an attack on the idea. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be challenged by those around us that maybe we're not really faithful believers ourselves. It's we're caught up in the same kind of uh, tribal party spirit that the rest of the culture is, right? So you just... You just have to cheer for your own side independently of uh, the truth. It's actually something, not to quote Socrates more than Peter, but that's, uh, that's something Socrates says in his own defense when he says that uh, to, uh, to say that there's some standard other than truth is actually to claim that there is no God. So mm. that's something I think we can be reminded of as well. If we think that there's some ends justifies the means way of engaging in public dispute or mm-hmm. apologetics uh, rather than speaking faithfully to the truth. Well, that's actually to say that there's not a God, or at least that God's revelation and God's spirit and God's expressed will for us isn't enough for how we need to work effectively in our own day. We're talking today on In Context with Dr. Brian O'Neill, Dean of Faculty at the Moody Bible Institute, also teaches in the theology department. However, he teaches the subject of 
philosophy in the theology department. You've also contributed to a new commentary. Every uh, decade or so, a great organization comes together. The Moody Bible Commentary has just come out. You can go to the In Context website and we'll show you how to acquire a copy of this phenomenal single volume on all 66 books of the Bible. It's always a good thing to have what I call a single or two-volume set uh, commentary on the Bible along with your other study tools. Brian, a couple of years back, you finished your PhD, which, by the way, congratulations. Thank you. Very proud of you uh, finishing your PhD at Purdue. And uh, you wrote on a, at the time, a pretty controversial issue among a not always friendly context. Purdue was actually a great place to take up some of these issues. The title of the dissertation was... um, Good science, God science, uh, defending the scientific legitimacy of design hypotheses. So, uh, so, that, so say that for the seventh graders of us in the room. Yeah, the, the <laughs> we we hear about things like the intelligent design movement and ID. intelligent yeah ID and um, one of the most common rejections of uh, ID or intelligent design is look maybe it's interesting as far as religion goes, or it's interesting as far as philosophy goes, but it's not really science. And uh, so it has no place in a scientific discussion. And uh, the thing I tried to do in the context of the dissertation was just to examine that kind of claim, ask what science actually is, point out lots of places where science does actually consider issues of design and intelligence, and then look at some of the particular modern design arguments and just try to defend the legitimacy of the question, not necessarily defend any of the particular arguments directly, but just to say that it's a legitimate component of science as it's done these days. I think that science is really important for Christians these days to not opt out, uh, and science is almost the the priesthood of our modern, postmodern mm-hmm. culture, right? When uh, That's a good quote. Alan Bloom said psychologists were the sworn enemies of God guilt. And so now we can say that... Now we can say that scientists are the high priesthood of our own day, right? When they put on the the white coat and put the stethoscope around their neck or something like that, it's like they're donning holy garments. Why do you think we've gotten to the place where we're looking at science from everything from energy, green, sustainability, uh, global warming? I mean, we we do worship this notion of science. Well, I'm a big fan of science for fundamentally Christian reasons, right? I mean, God made the world and he made us for it and fit those two together and called us to understand it and engage it and to extend it. And so science and Christianity ought to be friends and historically have been. Most of the great advances in science for centuries were accomplished by Christians who, because they were Christians, because they thought that if God exists and he's created us and the world, then we've got good reason for thinking that the world's understandable and that we can master it in healthy, stewarding kind of ways. And so the approach to science for centuries from within the church was one of optimism But like lots of other things, good gifts get distorted or twisted. So science isn't evil. Um, Even the intent to understand the world isn't an evil thing. But it's it's a corrupted thing quite Mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, then if we're going to engage or appreciate or follow along in the, the sort of the worldview of that atheistic attitude or that agnostic attitude, then we're we're going to look at only part of the world, or science is going to give us only partial answers. 
Well, I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue part two with Dr. Brian O'Neill. Brian will make you think. And one of the things I appreciate about him is we need men and women like him who are thinking biblically, philosophically, theologically, when we're inundated in our current culture with the idea that science trumps, quote, religion, science trumps, quote, faith. And I want you to be grounded. I want you to have the confidence in why you believe what you believe so that when science overwhelms you, when philosophy overwhelms you, you're not shy. You don't back down. You're able to engage a conversation. You don't have to be an apologetic person. You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to win the debate. But you do need to know why you believe what you believe, to have confidence in the Scripture, to be thoughtful about the way you engage people. And who knows, God just may well use you to ask the right questions of your friends who are just believing whatever's being shoveled down the line about the world, about philosophy, about science. Don't let the world teach you theology. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.